When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is your content warning. Prepare for a lot of bad things in this episode. Welcome to the Witcher Lorecast, where we take a look into the vast universe of The Witcher, such as the games, books, shows, and so much more. Welcome back, Witchers, to another episode of the Witcher Lorecast. I'm one of your hosts, Ben of Tamaria, and always with me is the good ever, Toasty. The good ever? <laughs> Sometimes. The good ever, Toasty. Sometimes I don't think anybody that knows me would agree with that statement. <laughs> but, um, or, or... Are you recording? Yeah, I'm recording. Yes, yes, we're recording. Just be sure, just be sure. We got to make sure every day. <laughs> we're still doing our uh, kingdoms and countries, nations, and uh, what's tour today? Tour of the continent. We'll yeah, there we tour go. Of tour of the continent. Yeah, so um, we're talking about Nilfgaard today. I also just realized that you are an anonymous Oshalosh, uh on Google Docs, and I'm so excited. So, Say what? An anonymous uh, Oshaloch, which is, people think it's pronounced axolotl, but it's not. <laughs> because of like the, the, the native language that that word comes from, it is pronounced Oshaloch. The more you know. Okay. It's like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? You know what an axolotl is, right? No. That's been it for this episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, let's get on to fucking Nilfgaard because uh, now I'm sad. Look up. Look them up later, okay? They're so fucking adorable. They're my favorite creature to ever exist on this planet. I'm not telling you right now. Don't do it right now. <laughs> oh, they're okay. The, the they're most the, adorable things in the they're world. They're the water salamanders. Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know what they were called. <laughs> I haven't been to the zoo in forever, okay? <laughs> uh, you hardly ever see these fucking things at the zoo. <laughs> well, you know, you never know. But anyway, <laughs> Nilfgaard. Anyways, yes. We're talking about Nilfgaard today. Um... Oh, God. My brain has... Has Borkin because of you. Thank you. Um, but we're talking about Nilfgaard today. Um, not in, not not Nilfgaard including Toussaint. That's going to be a different thing entirely. Um, 
Uh, I'll look into the other vassal states of like Nilfgaard and see if there's anything substantial uh, or substantive, which will be the correct term here. I don't know about any of those, but we'll talk. We're today we're talking about Nilfgaard, the Greater Nilfgaard, uh, the Greater Whole of Nilfgaard, which is in the Witcher, the primary antagonist of the continent for the most part. Uh, there's always the looming threat of Nilfgaard um, that Geralt always seems to get tangled up in, even though he would rather not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he and, sticks his nose into things he shouldn't. Yeah, well, like, people keep roping him into these things. That's also um, true. I mean, he gets he basically decides the fate of the war. Or he does decide the fate of the war in the last game, so... Yeah. Very big impact there. But anyways, the Nilfgaardian Empire is the most powerful empire in the history of the known world. Witcher-wise. It is located in the southern part of the continent and boasts both a thriving economy and a strong, well-trained army with talented commanders. And a very large army at that, too. It has expanded mostly through the conquest of foreign countries, which were then turned into provinces of the Empire. The Empire's inhabitants believe that real Novgardians are only those born in the heart of the Empire and not those born in the conquered provinces. These provinces are ruled by either stewards or kings. In cases in which a king willingly surrenders, he retains his throne but is subject to the emperor or just a vassal. The Empire has expanded throughout the years, conquering new lands and going as far to the north as the Uruga River during the reign of Emperor Amir Far Imris. Yeah. That's fun. I mean, this is this is the Witcher version of like the Roman Empire, right? Like Yeah. Oh man, that made me think of the fucking meme. <laughs> The meme going around with guys. Oh. Like, how often do guys think about the Roman Empire? Well, I don't think about it as much as I think about the Nilfgaardian Empire, but they're kind of the same thing. So think of that what you will. Now, the uh, Nilfgaardian Empire, uh, also known as the Empire of Nilfgaard, just Nilfgaard, the Empire, or the Eternal Empire, uh, some powerful uh, names there. Uh, they are a absolute monarchy, um, which or for a time and then an absolute empire, absolutist empire, and an imperialistic state. So, kind of been through different power structures throughout its lifespan. Which I think the imp the empire part comes with. Um. With Emir, right? It's was kind it, of or the usurper. No, it was the usurper. Usurper. Because the because yeah. during the first Nilfgaardian War, um, mm -hmm. the when they invade the continent, when the northern realms, that Emir was still like exiled during that time, wasn't he? No, I think or he's was the one that, started. Or the, he no, started that's right. That. He started that. Uh, I'm, talking, he, he I'm thinking before. The, yeah, he defeated the usurper, uh, and then started like i think the war or, or started the invasion of the that's right the yeah. northern i'm getting my events mixed up 
thanks to the flipping Netflix show. <laughs> yeah, they kind of bounce, but like, like, yeah, that part takes place. I think that's the. I'm trying to think in the books, I don't know where in line the. Um, I guess I guess Renfrey is probably the earliest one as far as the stories, all of the stories go. Actually, because technically Queen Calanthe just takes her like the earliest first... story is the Striga. Oh, that's the right. first no, story. Well, because I'm actually re listening to uh, the Last Wish, and the very first story is the Striga. I know, but they're not in order in that either. No, that's also true. That's that's also true. Yeah, they're not in because like that is the first story. But like Rin, and I don't know if this is in the book per se. I just I'm remembering the show where Rinfrey specifically says Queen Calanthe of Sintra just got her first military victory, which you assume mm-hmm. happened way before Siri was ever born. Right. So I don't because Calanthe but, she got her first victory. She was in like, her teens. Yeah, she I was thought. like fourteen or something. It was like yeah. she was like. Stupid young, so I don't know if the I have to I have to check back and see if the book says that. Uh, but I'm thinking of like the show, which we know may not be entirely accurate. But I think that is because there's also like again specifically in the show, Geralt gives or tries to give Foltest the Renfrey's brooch. Mm-hmm. So you'll have to tell me if he tries to do that in that, and then we can maybe okay. draw conclusions or something. So, but anyways, uh, back to it. Um, this its status is of an empire or a Senate-backed republic, which was its former state um, that it was back whenever it was created. Um, it is ruled by the Imperator of Nilfgaard, uh, or the coadjutor of the empire in the final period of Emperor Amir's rule. Its head of government is the Imperial Council. Its commander-in-chief is the Field Marshal. The de facto leader is the Guild of Merchants. It has the legislative branch of the Imperial Senate, uh, a high tribunal for a judicial branch, and, of course, it has the Nilfgaardian Army as its military branch. And they also have an intelligence service titled the Nilfgaardian Military Intelligence. So a lot of different, like branches here they have the full um yeah they have the full like three branches like the u.s or whatever mm-hmm. which the i don't think do four. we see that in every other i don't think mm-hmm. so right i don't no no because they typically i mean from what we see prior it's typically just have a ruler and that's kind of it whatever the king or queen says it's law essentially mm-hmm. Uh, now its capital is the city of golden towers what a fucking name it's It's something Elfgard would come up with (laughs) it's a fancy ass place yep Uh, the official language is the Nilfgaardian language Um, they're referred to as Nilfgaardians or black ones or black clads by the northern kingdoms in a derogatory sense um, they make use of both the florin and the mark, I guess, depending on vassal states or whatnot, because they use florins in Toussaint. Yeah. It sounds about right. And then their religion is the Church of the Great Sun, which 
I found out doing this started as a cult and then they made it the official religion, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Fun. Which granted, I guess there's, there's a little bit of that in Zeracania too. So whatever. Yeah. That's um, true. Anyways, uh, since the peace of Sintra, the empire spans from the Yoruga river try saying that really fast um in the north all the way down to southern parts of the continent where only a short distance separates it from other mysterious and unknown lands such as hanu zengvabar barsa and ophir to the west Nilfgaardian border is defined by the coastline of the great sea to the east lies tier torker mountain range as well as desolate wilderness and barren lands on the east of the empire lie lies the endless Korath Desert, also known as the Frying Pan. According to Queen Meave of Lyria and Rivia, the Empire is 30 times bigger than Lyria. Yeah. It's like Lyria is one of the smaller ones, right? Yeah. But still, <laughs> but still 30 is a lot. I mean, yeah. we don't even see all of Nilfgaard on the map. <laughs> like no oh god like no. a chunk of it so yeah i mean like at least it's not like 30 times the size of like kaidwin that was the case i feel like jesus christ yeah that would be ins- yeah that would be insane um and i know we if you want to see a little bit of lyria you do get a little bit of it in Thronebreaker, the gwent side game mm-hmm. they did um with yeah. Queen of Eve and all that. Because you deal with the whole Nilfgaardian invasion and all that fun stuff. But uh, that's that's ter- That's still terrifying to know, though. Like, yeah, they, they're massive. Yeah, very big. Uh, now, since the Empire spans such a huge area, they have a very, very, eh, a varying climate. Um, from warm but mild in Sintra to hot and sunny weather around the Alba and down to the steppes and deserts bordering with the far south. Some territories have microclimates, which are dictated by both the land, like in the mountains and river deltas, to weather such as rain and wind. A rather large portion of the Empire's territory is also based around the meridians. Seacoasts consist of green, lush, and fertile lands, while the more inland areas tend to be barren, with the major exception being large river valleys. Which, you know, we always see people fighting over these damn river valleys. Yeah, yeah, we do. Kaidwin and Aider always yeah. fighting each other over <laughs> the Pontar River Valley? Pontar, Super- yeah, the Pontar. Uh, now... Uh, their national emblem, which is a bit easier to imagine than most. Um, and you've probably seen it a few times if you played The Witcher 3. Um, one inch above the cross guard, he saw a punch in the shape of the sun in its glory with 16 rays alternating straight and wavy, symbolizing heraldically the light and heat of the sun. This is a passage from Geralt admiring the Virledin sword he receives from Penity, the Lady of the Lake. Yeah, so Nilfgaard sword. Um, but yeah, no, the, the emblem is the great sun, as is their religion, uh, which symbolizes solar radiance and solar heat, is the primary symbol of the Nilfgaardian people, 
It appears in Imperial Heraldry on coins, banners of armed forces, as well as the mark of the Viraledon swordsmiths. So just everywhere. Much easier to describe and envision than any of the other ones that we've done. Yeah, I mean, sure, there's like heraldic terms you can use, like, a, I don't like, what is it, like, a, like a son of 16 rays alternating like straight and right. wavy That's emblazoned sign. upon a, a field of black. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. I've done so many of these and talked about the heraldry and I'm still far from an expert, but that's not important. But yeah, just imagine a big sun on a black flag and you have the symbol of Nilfgaard. Yep. There you go. Easy enough. Now, moving on to their society, uh, the uh, Dimonum Nilfgaardian, when used properly, refers only to the people of Lower Alba, descending from so-called Black She. While the El- while the Empire's population comprises several different cultures and nations, the authorities are keen on slow Nilfgaardization of minorities that is replacing all local values and customs with those of proper, quote, proper Nilfgaardian or a lower Alban heritage. Internal migration within imperial borders are encouraged. Colonies of lower Alban settlers are established within troubled provinces, while non-Nilfgaardian peasants loyal to the empire are encouraged to settle in newly conquered realms through attractive offers. Rebellious regions are cleansed through enslavement or ethnic cleansing of groups deemed problematic. The Vicavarians, Rowani, and Imlets have been Nilfgaardized for a long time. This is not great. This is real bad. <laughs> I'm having having trouble <laughs> to find the words to... Yeah, that that's no just i wasn't i you know i maybe i wasn't paying attention enough but i wasn't and it makes a lot of sense because this is the witcher roman empire and they did this kind of shit too but like i wasn't like aware of like all of this it it really makes it hard to like pick a side (laughs) at the end of the witcher 3 it's bad like like, if you want, like, if help Nilfgaard win and they do this kind of shit to people, which is really bad, you help Radovid win and he, like, does a lot of bad shit, including, like, trying to genocide all magical, like, people and non-human races, which is real bad. Like the best, it seems like the best option is Dijkstra, but you have to kill your friends to do it. So like, um, yeah, no, can we just not choose a side? <laughs> like your friends have to be sacrificed for the greater good, I guess. I don't know. This is rough. I, I mean, luckily, that. luckily, luckily, and I'll say this. If you, if Siri takes over Nilfgaard, then I'm sure a lot of this will stop. Oh, absolutely. She'll put it into it. So therefore, maybe not as bad as it could be, but like, 
that requires Siri becoming Empress, which a lot of people don't like that ending. But like, oh man, if you're thinking about the greater whole of the world and The Witcher, you gotta make some sacrifices somewhere. I mean, it is the world of The Witcher, so there's always a sacrifice. Oh yeah, for sure. But like, fuck, that's real bad. Ethnic cleansing is not a term I like to see anywhere. That means genocide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's not good. I was like, should we, should we put a content warning considering the things that are happening in the world right now? Here's your content warning. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to put what actually like put one beforehand. I don't know. Cause like, that's a little too real considering like uh fucking Israel and Palestine right now like oh yeah Good yeah point. we might we might want to just throw in a content warning there for people <laughs> um anyways moving on swiftly uh on the other hand the Nilfgaardian empire in general is considered a safer home than most northern realms for many non-human races the Nilfgaardian Empire is habited by most of the known sentient races, with humans as the majority. Elves, particularly assimilated ones, and the so-called wood elves are the largest minority. There are also some enclaves of dwarves, gnomes, and halflings. The Nilfgaardian Empire in general is considered a safer home than most of the northern realms for these non-human races who consider the imperial system harsh, but just. I guess, like, whenever you're, like, concerned about your, like, species as a whole and be- living in the Northern Kingdoms literally is, like, the death of you. Fair. Yeah. But still not, like, great. No. But, you know, at least you can live there without threat of being rounded up and killed off, like, we see in, like, I think the beginning of season two of the Netflix show. They're rounding up all the non-humans. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's real bad. Now, as for their appearance, the native slash parentheses lower Alban Nilfgaardians tend to have long faces, large foreheads, and dark hair and eyes, the legacy of their elven ancestors. Many of them have aquiline noses and strong chins, resulting in a characteristic Nilfgaardian profile. They are of medium height, usually with slim bodies and slender yet muscular arms and legs. Their skin is darker than Nordlings, but not, but usually not much swarthy. However, due to mixing with conquered nations and immigrants in the capital region, these characteristics can often vary. Aristocrats, knights, and courtiers alike generally dress in ceremonial courtly black berets and robes enlivened only by white ruffs and cuffs. Custom for women permit them to brighten their black, the black of their outfits with a little modest jewelry. So basically, like, black and white is the dress code? Interesting, because... So, it's Yen's favorite colors. And Maybe that's why she fits not, in so well. <laughs> that, I, yeah, even though she's not enough guardian, she's, uh, she's pretty uh, in tune with them. <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, we and we see like more representation in the like, we see a lot more like the gold and yellow kind of adorning a lot of their stuff too, mm-hmm. just from like you know 
the motif of like the great sun i'm sure is the reasoning behind that so right plus you know gold livens up any outfit at least um, maybe not any but darker color for them yeah darker color it adds that little bit of color that they otherwise just wouldn't have now as for their behavior they're a little uh un- unpleasant bunch <laughs> within the nilf guardian society lies a disdain for all commotions emotions or excitement being not at all customary for nilf guardian nobility who believed that demonstrating anxiety or excitement was a sign of immaturity behavior of that kind was treated by the nilf guardian nobleman as highly reprehensible and contemptible to such an extent that even youths from whom few would have demanded greater maturity were expected to refrain from any displays of animation. So this is why Amir looks like he's a complete guy with a stick up his ass. <laughs> Basically, it's the it's their like what is expected of them is to just be like a stick in the mud at all times <laughs> which is why he can't get any rise out of that one guy i know there's like the one the one dude who's in charge of like redressing Geralt's at the oh, beginning of the game yeah. whenever you're going to meet Ymir and like you can try to like rile him up and he's just kind of like meh so please just put on the clothing the chamberlain <laughs> the chamberlain yeah that's the chamberlain the word. they're friends they're friends yeah. Now, as uh, moving on to their culture, their language uh, is kind of an interesting one. Uh, so the empire could be described as a genuine linguistic microcosm. Each of the conquered people used their ancestral languages at home, especially in the south. So I guess at least they get to keep their languages of their their homelands. <clears throat> There was an exception in the case of Nordling countries conquered in the 13th century, where the common speech was used on equal terms with the Nilfgaardian language in schools and offices, even though it was slowly dying under the invaders' pressure. The Nilfgaardian language is based on elder speech and the languages of various human colonizers, but mostly on the elder speech. It is considered quite complicated, but surprisingly logical and more focused on details than the elven language. It is official throughout the state and necessary to achieve a career. And the alphabet is based on elder runes, but the Nordling's modern alphabet is also an unofficial use. Interesting. So So another country that uses elder speech or a form. It's a, it's a variation of elder speech, which again, like, and like, I'll have to like, do some research and see how much information we could have, but like they're descended from the black she, which you know, elven, like that is like that is she, like the a and she, or uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. like some sort of elven like predecessors. <clears throat> uh, now their religion, as we stated before, um, is that of the great sun. But during the Republican period, there was no official religion, but dozens of smaller cults scattered throughout the state. The situation changed during Emperor Torres's reign, who was looking for a symbol which would unite the realm better and more permanently than only the ruling dynasty. 
He found such a symbol in the Great Sun, a minor cult popular within the core regions of the Empire. Through the March 8th edict, he declared the Church of the Great Sun the official state religion of the Empire. Other religions have been tolerated as long as they stay away from positions of power. So, sort of freedom of religion, to an extent. Yeah. <clears throat> Not freedom, I guess. Toler- tolerance, tolerance of religion. Of religion. <laughs> yeah. As long as you don't go yeah. for power or control of said government, we don't care what you practice. Mm-hmm. And now, the most, uh, probably the, the aspect of Nilfgaard that people are most familiar with, at least in the Northern Kingdoms, is the army. <laughs> Uh, the Imperial Army of the Nilfgaardian Empire is, without a doubt, one of the best-trained fighting forces on the continent. Boasting from the lower ranks to the higher nobles involved within the military, its soldiers, known as the Black Clad, are well-versed in the art of combat. Under the complete control of the Nilfgaardian Imperator, who leads it through a set of high-ranking officers under a field marshal. During greater conquests and invasions, such as the Northern Wars, the army was divided into groups such as Center Army Group, East Army Group, and Verdant Operations Group. Or Verdin Operations Group. During the second of the Northern Wars, the army count was calculated at 320,000, with 300,000 attacking the kingdoms and about 20,000 remaining in the empire to keep the peace and defend core provinces in case of an unexpected turn in war. I can't remember any of the established Northern Kingdom cotton. Like they don't even come close. I think Redania has the largest at like 35. I can't remember. It was like real small. Yeah. The Northern Kingdom. I mean, this is why the, Northern Kingdoms always has a tough time when Nilfgaard invaded because Nilfgaard's just sheer number of soldiers compared Mm -hmm. to any of the others. Like, mostly the kingdoms have, like, armies within, like, you know, 20, 30,000. Well, Nilfgaard has that 10 times. Let's see, Royal Redanian Army. Number of soldiers, 35,000. I was on the bunny. So, yeah. Ooh, that's fucking 10%. <laughs> but the reason why Novgorod, like, you know, mostly lose for the first two times is morally deal with weather aspects. Yeah, I mean, that's like, if you are an army from a, like, colder part of the world um, and, like, have like defendable positions in like your you know country continent whatever like that is kind of the key is like don't fight them head on just try to defend until like you know basically get to winter time and then the weather will take care of mm-hmm. a large number of the enemy forces so but you know it's a still rough it's still really rough oh yeah their army is that big uh, and in addition to the army, they have a number of other things that they make use of, um, like siege weapons, uh, which include uh, mangonels, trebuchets, Zeracanian fire scorpions, which we talked about last week, and rot tossers. Um, 
And for anyone that's not familiar with a mangonel, that is a, it is like a trebuchet, except it's, it is like cranked down to like bring tension and then released. So it is more of like a hydraulic operated trebuchet rather than like relying just on gravity, like uh, a, a standard trebuchet. So, um, and then a rot tosser is specifically a siege weapon used to toss the dead. Um, over like walls of cities and in like basically subject them to plague and disease which is dark yep that's dark hey they're barricaded in their you know main capital what do we do let's just throw all the dead bodies back into them yeah it's very like i mean that was very like it's also like a fear thing because like i'm it makes me immediately think of like um the the battle of Minas Tirith in in Return of the King, mm-hmm. where like the orcs start launching the heads of like their soldiers into it, and it's like, ah, oh, that's scary, and effective. So, mm-hmm. um, in addition to their army, um, they make use of their slavery. Um, so slavery is commonplace amongst the Novgardians, and slaves usually prisoners of war are used not only for manual work, but even during combat, uh, fighting for their freedom, at least according to their masters. Which makes it sound like, hey, you can fight for your freedom, but then you're fighting for the rest of your life, or which is probably short-lived because you're a slave, and so they probably don't outfit you with the best of things, and you die on the front lines. Yeah. Um and the army consists of a variety of soldiers like light and heavy cavalry, spearmen, pikemen, archers, and crossbowmen. Yeah, they use a lot. And uh, the fire scorpions, if you remember, they're the giant green flamethrowers. Yeah, they, they do like the Greek fire shit. So mm-hmm. pretty, pretty effective. Which is, that is the Gwent card I was referring to back in last week's episode. Mm-hmm. That is the Gwent card they have. You can have that in your Gwent deck. So. How much how much power does it have, do you know? Is it I one think of it the was tens? like six. No, I think it was like six. Oh, really? Yeah. Surprising. All, uh, this, actually, the Northern Kingdom uh, Gwent deck, I believe, has the most powerful siege weapons. Hmm. They typically range in the eights. Oh, interesting. That's why I normally I there's, like a, no there's like a 10 weapon. one, right? Or no, uh, not that high. Uh, I don't know about siege weapons. Mostly the tens are the ones that are typically like the, the quote-unquote legendary cards. Yeah. Uh, cards in the game. Okay. But, Can't I mean, there's remember. some I other... I know the siege weapons are pretty high usually, so... The monster siege we- weapons are not because they're monsters. Well, yeah. But they summon other creatures, so there's Like that. summoning a million at a time. Oh my god, I, t- I hate, yeah. hate playing against monster decks. It's like, here, throw the entire deck on the board. <laughs> mm-hmm, pretty much. But um, at that point, we are going to take a quick, quick mid-break and be right back. Very well. Let us get this over with. Something has infested my vineyard. Mm-hmm. Great. Let me go prepare my something oil then.
Alright, welcome to the mid-break of the show where we talk about everything to do with the lore cast. It has nothing to do with the Witcher lore itself. And at this point, I want to thank all of our patrons supporting us on patreon.com. Uh, especially a big shout-out to our higher vampire, Jared M., who gets a shout-out every episode, um, every week. And if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash witcherlorecast where you can get ad-free episodes or even join us on the show once a month, the topic of your choosing. And then you can also support us in a few other ways. You can support us on Apple and Spotify. If you leave a five-star review with some words and then a comment on a Spotify episode, which we do have a review today, um, it is on Apple uh, by Hunter of the Blue Mountains. Uh, five stars, great show with good information. I've always loved the Witcher games, but only recently started reading the books, and this caused me to start wanting to learn more lore of the series. I found this podcast I've been listening to a few weeks and love the details and information. Both Tom and Toasty are great hosts and love learning about the deeper lore. Bless you. Thank you, yeah, Hunter. Ben, ben is a great <laughs> Ben is a great host too, but he I don't think Hunter's gotten that far yet. But thank you, Hunter, for your for your. Hey, review. depending on where you're at, you could hear me on the patron chats. So there's that. It's true. Probably have heard Ben on the patron chats. And I've guest star a few times too. My time before. Mm-hmm. The Griffin episode. Griffin, the Leshen, because the Leshen was the first one I was on for Monsters. Oh, did we do? Le- oh, were you like? Was it me, you, and Tom, or yeah. was it me and you? Okay. Is uh me, you, and Tom? Okay. I was trying to remember. I was like. It's been so long. I think that was one of the know, first ones like, I did, right? That like, was the first one we did. First one I did? I thought so. <laughs> it was like, because it was all about the lesson. We made we made the, the like, tier four one, the lesson two. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the big one. So That it was. And um, speaking of patrons, we do have a new patron to shout out this week. Um, thank you for joining uh, Brady T., Joining us as a lesson tier. Oh shit! We'll see you on the show at the end of the month. Oh yeah, and uh, join the Discord. Uh, we are on a few different Discords: the Robots Radio Discord at robotsradio.net, as well as my Discord at the Ben and Friends Podcasting. Uh, join us on there, and that way we can know what you want to talk about on this week's or this month's patron chat. And that goes for all of our patrons as well. Yeah. And um, before we end the mid-break, we did get some Witcher news over the weekend, which we mm-hmm. are getting a new Netflix animated movie, uh, which was teased and rumored that we... Honestly, I didn't see it coming. Um, but it is the Sir- uh, Witcher Sirens of the Deep, which is the... Short, uh, based off the short story, A Little, Little Sacrifice. And so this is, you know, Henry Cavill's design as Geralt. But mm-hmm. it's not Henry Cavill or Liam uh, Hemsworth um, voicing Geralt. It's none other than the original voice of Geralt, Doug Cockle, is reprising his role for Netflix. Which is super exciting. Yes. Wow. Um, we can and like it's like this is this is off the thing or whatever. We should probably do a trailer breakdown, right? Like, I mean, we can. Trailer, yeah, we can do we a trailer breakdown. Maybe we 
maybe we can do that later we can just call that next next week or something i don't mind recording if it's a trailer breakdown okay i forgot true. about that first <laughs> i straight up forgot about it for a second i ain't gonna lie so yeah so but yep that's what we have for uh the news for the witcher which is super yeah. exciting stuff i'm very um, excited about it because for one i mean doug cockle so like we're gonna be hearing like Geralt, the Geralt most of us know um and that is also my favorite short story in the whole like thing or in both books so yeah i'm excited about that yeah it's gonna be different it's gonna, you can already tell it's going to be different. So I'm not sure it's going to be weird. We're going to see how it goes or whatever. Cause like I know, like we already know Yennefer's in it. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like they've said that and it's going to be Anya Chalotra voicing Yennefer. Yep. So, and um, the uh, actor for Yaskir is reprising his role as the voice of Yaskir as well. Joey Beatty. Yep. Yeah. So it's gonna be weird because Jennifer's not supposed to be part of the story. <laughs> so I don't know, but we yeah. can already tell that they've expanded stuff too. There's a lot more in there, like in the trailer itself, that we have like and was not part of the original story. So whenever we do our uh, trailer deep dive for that, uh, you will notice that Geralt is wearing armor very similar to his Witcher Three armor, but with the wolf medallion from the Netflix show. <laughs> And I think that's kind of it's like cool. a little nod because Doug Cockle is voicing girl in the in mm-hmm. the in the movie, which is kind of yeah, cool. No, I mean it looks. You say it like it looks like Henry Cavill's design, but it does really. It does look pretty similar to like like earlier Witcher mm-hmm. video game series designs or whatever. Like not Ger- Geralt Geralt without facial hair. So right, which is Witcher it? one and two. Yeah. So. Eh. It looks a bit better than Witcher 1 and 2, at least. What's yeah. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. But um, that's what we have for the mid-break. So let's get back to more Nilfgaard. You smell of death and destiny, heroics and heartbreak. It's on you now. Right, yeah. So uh, now we talk about the history of Nilfgaard, which uh, Nilfgaardians believe reaches all the way back to the second century, which is a very important distinction from saying it actually does. They think it does. (laughs) So we can't be entirely sure. The first settlers mixed with the Black Shi, creating a nation consisting mostly of elven language, beliefs, customs, and culture. Meanwhile, the valiant shepherds inhabiting scattered settlements on the Alba slowly incorporated the surrounding nations, appropriating their best traits like the culture, technology, and military strategies, offering them safety and order in return. The two groups eventually merged during various conquests by neighboring nations and periods of freedom, creating a unique heritage mixing the achievements of elves, Vicavarians, Aetolians, and several Alban tribes. At some point in their history, the kingdom of Nilfgaard emerged. The monarchs were aided by a council of advisors, which became known as the Senate. Over time, the Senate has gained more and more power, becoming a legislative body. 
During this period, Nilfgaardian influences started to expand and neighboring lands were slowly Nilfgaardized and the people brought under the dominion of the empire through the diplomacy of steel were expected to learn its official language and adopt elements of the victor's culture. So basically they were conquered and incorporated. Roman Empire shit. God, this this is me. This episode is making me hate the Nilf card more and more than what I already do. I see. I, look, I didn't have that big of a problem with it before. I had a problem with like Amir, but now well, I have yeah, a problem with it. Yeah, that, <laughs> now I, mean, I have a problem probably, with it. That's that's where I was going with too. It, Amir has always been my big issue. I, I for very good reasons. Now I'm like, fuck God. Amir. All my homies hate Amir. <laughs> yes. Um, which we'll get. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about him and reasons why he's so hateable later on in this. <laughs> Eventually, a couple of realms outside the Lower Alba were incorporated into the realm, either willingly or by force. And when they say willingly, and we'll see very specifically demonstrated, willingly generally means that the nation was so scared of what they did to the ones they conquered that they like were like, we'll, we'll, we'll join. <laughs> Hands like up and everything. We're, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> the title of Imperator appeared at first only as a position in the army. Known lands that were joined in that period were Rowan and Imlac, apparently also Ruach, Derlin, Magni, and Winneberg. In the early 12th century, Imperator Torres Var Imris overthrew the Senate and took absolute power. At first, he referred to his realm only as a kingdom, but during his later reign, the term empire was coined and the emperor with it. Okay, so my bad. My mistake earlier. This is this is when the empire uh, came into being. Torres's reign also saw the adapt adaptation via the March 8th Edict of the Great Sun as the state religion and coat of arms of the empire. Sometime after Torres's death, likely in the early 1200s, Fergus of our Emery's ascended the throne. However, he was considered by many to be a weak emperor. In 1216, Emperor Fergus of our Imris decided to uh, make his fucking bite as, work as, as worse as his bark, apparently. I'm having to imagine right here that like he was having like, like little man syndrome mm -hmm. and decided to, because people were like, oh, this is, this is our weakest emperor to date, which like we've only had two, but whatever. And he was like, well, I'm just going to conquered this fucking nation over here to prove myself. <laughs> That's pretty much what he did. Uh, but he decided to use Atolia as an example of the future that awaits all enemies of the Empire. The Nilfgaardian army attacked and overwhelmed Atolia, annihilated its power structures, and decimated the values defining Atolian life. Fergus subjected Gamera in that year as well. Vicavarian nobles influenced their ruler and Vicavaro asked to join Nilfgaard willingly on its own initiative. See what I mean? <laughs> he took over these two and they were like, oh, we're good. Fergus was ultimately overthrown by the usurper in 1233. During the coup, Fergus was killed by the usurper while his son and heir, Emir, was cursed by the mage Brathens, who turned him into a humanoid hedgehog. Despite having dogs set on him, Emir managed to escape and with help from his own acquaintances, left the empire. Now, during 
Yeah, yeah. The and this is where we get into the story of uh removing his curse and him getting with uh Pavetta. Pavetta. I was like I was trying to say favela and I was like, no, that's like a fucking different that's a Brazilian thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now during the usurper's reign, he proclaimed a national amnesty, diminished the cult of the great son's rights, and in twelve thirty nine he annexed Ebbing. During this long conflict, Atina, Nazare, and even Macht were conquered by the empire by the 1250s. In 1257, an uprising led by Ardal Eabdahi, Vilgefortz, and other emir's supporters uh, stormed the imperial palace and killed the usurper. Amir of our Emrys, the rightful heir to the throne, who was banished from his country, entered once again in Nofgard and became the new emperor, gaining the nickname the White Flame Dancing on the Barrows of His Enemies. And as much as you hate Amir, that's a metal last name. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty dope name. It's pretty scary. Um, or in the Nofgardian language, Dithwin Adin Inter Ep Morvid. Yeah, you're surprised I said that so fast, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> hey, hey, just because I said it with confidence, it doesn't mean I said it right. <laughs> Fair point. Um, I will say uh, I am not surprised that Vilgefortz is a part of all this BS that's going on because he's he he's up there with Amir as the most hate, like one of the most hated people that I have in this but world. But Ben, but Ben, but Ben. Do you like his staff? Oh no, no, no! We're not going there with the Netflix BS either. I, but Ben, oh, but Ben, his staff, Ben. I, oh, I hated that line. Don't you like his staff? No, I hated that line too, Ben. I even go. I felt the same. It was so cringe. It was like, oh, here's this terrifying secret villain that like no one knew about except for. Uh, people all of the people the that were familiar with the story <laughs> but like to be fair a good chunk of the people watching the show didn't know that and it's like oh the super terrifying secret villain you like my staff <laughs> like I just every time I in my brain it sounds like the fucking like you like jazz <laughs> like that's what it sounds like in my brain now like you like my staff <laughs> oh, <God>. sorry <laughs> That tangent is over. <laughs> Sorry for anyone whose ears are just fucking on fire. Like, yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Moving on to the First Northern War. And during his reign, Amir continued the expansion started by the usurper, beginning the First Northern War in 1263 by invading Sintra, winning the Battle of Marnadal at the Marnadal Stairs before marching to Sintra's capital, which was besieged and most of the inhabitants slaughtered. Meanwhile, Amir tasked Kair Mar Diffin Eb Kalak, that one's real bad, uh, a knight within his secret service to capture Cirilla, the granddaughter of Queen Calanthe of Sintra and Amir's secret daughter, and whom he planned to marry. Now, we'll just refer to him as Kair, if his name comes up again. <laughs> However, Kair failed in his task and was imprisoned for two years in the citadel at Nilfgaard, while Amir continued to try and push into the north. This came to an abrupt halt, though, during the devastating Battle of Sodden Hill, where the north's mages played a crucial part and ended the First Northern War with Nilfgaard's defeat. 
Despite this, the empire held fast to Sintra and in 1267 managed to suppress a rebellion, capturing their leader, Windholm of Atra, and having him executed as a show of force. And I guess that ex- like this part here specifically uh, explains just how long the like beginning of season three like was like like out of character or not out of character but like um in the show what was i trying to say i lost my train of thought but you know like with the part with um Geralt and Jennifer and siri like kind of on the run or whatever because mm-hmm. kair was specifically in prison for two years which was also happening at the same time so that whole portion was two years of development which now makes a like it makes it feel a bit better that he forgave Yennefer, yeah. like quote unquote, so quickly. And I was like, no, actually, that was two years of them on the run. So he probably held a grudge for I don't know the first year or more. So <laughs> yeah, Geralt isn't known to forgive others quickly or easily, especially those who put Siri in harm's way. Yeah. Don't do that. Which Yennefer would never do, but you know we won't talk about that. We we've beaten we've beaten it into the ground at this point. I can't I can't go on another rant about it. No, if you want to hear us more rant about it, go to the patron chat with all of us on uh, yeah. talking about season three, or just yeah. any of the episodes in that like one month period where I was just violent. Apparently, people love hearing me fucking go on rants like that, though. But I was like, like I know how I sounded. It was it was probably pretty bad. But anyways, uh, moving on to the second Northern War, um, still set on Sake of the North in the summer of twelve sixty seven. Amir set in motion plans to start the second Northern War. This time, enlisting the help of several powerful mages to stage a Thanid coup to remove the North's mages and thus their advantage that won the last war. While the plan went awry, it ultimately led to the Brotherhood of Sorcerers, Brotherhood of Sorcerers' downfall, and with King Dimavind of Adern faking an invasion at his borders to try and make it look like the work it was the work of Nilfgaard. Amir used this to mobilize his army and invade the north once again. With the northern chaos from Vizimir II's assassination, Nilfgaard's invasion, and the distrust towards mages, it looked like Nilfgaard would finally capture the north. However, to truly calm down the people of Sintra, Amir still needed Ciri and had people out looking for her. While he was presented with a girl around her age a few months after the Thanid coup and officially named her Queen of Sintra, he knew she wasn't his daughter and only recognized her as queen to quell the masses while he continued the search for the real one. Now, for people that are still interested in the show that may be listening, which probably isn't a very large number of people, but I'm going to say it anyways, just to be considerate. The next parts, like the next few couple paragraphs, quite possibly spoilers for season four. So, you know, if that's a thing that bothers you to know the information that they're going to be delving into 
or drawing loose inspiration from, which is probably the better terminology. Yeah. You might want to, <laughs> you might want to turn off now. Thanks for listening. But if you don't care, there's your spoiler warning. <clears throat> and, now, and loose, by the way, loose. We take things from this at this point. <laughs> yeah. This way I said loose interpretation, just so you know, but there's still something here that probably will get brought in. More than a few things, probably. Now, Stefan Skullin, one of the men entrusted in finding Siri, had other plans in mind, though, wanting to overthrow Amir and the monarchy and make the empire a democracy instead. That would have been nicer. Hopefully it would have abolished slavery, but, you know, I guess we'll never know. Together with Ardal Abdahi, Bruin, the RV, and Joachim the Wit and Berengar Louverden, they decided to find Ciri, but then kill her to prevent the continuation of a monarchy. This conspiracy failed, though, as Berengar Louverden later revealed the plan to Amir for leniency. And, you know, I was going to say, there's a lot of people in this plan. And, like, I feel like plans like this you want to keep, like, pretty limited in the yeah. number that you have. Because, mm-hmm. like, chances are one of you is going to snitch. And it looked like it was Berengar. While he was spared, Amir had Stefan Skullin captured and ordered his execution after a trial. In the meantime, Nilfgaardian forces clashed against Temerian ones in the Battle of Brenna, where the Imperial Army lost and Field Marshal Minno Kohorn was killed. Following this huge failure, the Empire sent Ambassador Shillard Fitz Osterlin to negotiate during the Peace of Sintra. In the end, the Empire was forced to surrender once again to the north, but was allowed to keep Sintra. Although the Empire was officially defeated, the huge damage caused by the war to the northern kingdoms forced the latter to buy great amounts of food from the Empire and from Kovir and Povis, which greatly enriched them. After Ciri was found, Emir was still set on marrying her until he realized the only thing that mattered to her was to be with her adoptive parents. With this, he let her go, and having fallen for false Siri, who was still officially declared a Sintra's heir, married her in the spring of 1268, officially making Sintra part of the Empire. And I guess, thanks for having a heart at some point in your fucking life, Amir? Yeah, know. no shit. Oh my god, like, this is why in... Everyone listening, this is why we all hate Amir. (laughs) There's like, there's like a part here that, like, honestly, kind of hard to believe that, like, this man did all this shit. Like, all of the stuff he did, as horrible as he is, and we have to deal with them later in The Witcher 3 and get more of an idea of how much he fucking sucks. He, Siri was like, I want to be with my adopted parents, and he was just like, "I right, cool," like right. As like you couldn't have very not couldn't you have that like realization, like well enough before you try to invade a second time after losing already once. Yeah, I mean, I guess like maybe it's because he like had fallen for the other one that like he was like kind of okay with it because he didn't really want to marry Siri because he had the other one or whatever. But even my thing too. Which by the way, both are children 
I might yes. state. So yes. like yes, disgusting, by the way. Like this man fell for what? Like a thirteen year old girl? Uh she's in between the ages of thirteen and fifteen, I believe. Uh, I admit false Siri. Do we know the age range of false Siri or just Siri? I think just Siri. I think uh, okay. Siri's I mean, typically around. Way. I think Siri's around like thirteen to fifteen at this point. I think so. At the end yeah. of Lady of the Lake. Yeah. So um, it's still gross. Yeah. Still no. No. Gross. But you know that's fucking medieval, medieval times. <laughs> medieval times. <laughs> yeah. Incest and pedophilia are high on the royal preference. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Moving on to what is officially only a game canon as we get into the Third Northern War, um, which is the events of the video game series. And the Third Northern War started around 1271 after the failed summit in Loch Muin. Once again, the army commanded by the new Field Marshal Havart Var Mohon. I don't know how to pronounce that. Do we know how to pronounce that? Miohoen? Miohoen? It might be like Mohoin or something because it's like they have weird fucking names. Uh, Invaded the north, conquering the kingdoms of Adern, Lyria, Rivia, and Tamaria, which remained without a leader after the Kingslayers murdered both Dimovin III and Fultist by order of Amir. When Nilfgaard approached Kaidwin, King Radovid V of Redania invaded his neighbors and assumed control over Kaidwin. Instead of two weak enemies, Nilfgaard, who in the meantime conquered the capital city of Vitsima in Tamaria and was stationed in Valen, now was forced to face one large, powerful one. And this is where you as Geralt come into play to decide the fate of the continent and therefore Nilfgaard. Now, if Amir wins the war, after the assassination of Radovid and the death of Sigismund Dijkstra, the North without a leader couldn't defeat the armed forces of Amir, who conquered the whole North. And then was hopefully quickly replaced by Siri, who would have implemented better systems of justice and abolished slavery and uh, turned it into a democracy, like all of the wonderful things that we know Siri would do, right? Hopefully. Yeah. I'm not saying hopefully as in like, Hopefully Siri would do that because I know for sure she would. Hopefully, like she becomes Empress in this if if this is the winner of the war. Right. <laughs> it's the only way it goes well. Now, if Radovid wins the war, thanks to the strategic moves of Radovid, Amir was ultimately defeated by Redanian troops and was ultimately assassinated once returned to Nilfgaard by his opposition, tired of his continuous failures during the war. So this is a double-edged sword. Because Radovid wins. Amir dies, but Radovid wins and rules the north, or portion parts of the north. And he's he's, a dictator. And he's probably and non-humans. I would say he's worse than Amir. He's definitely worse than Amir. Uh, Because you know torture of non-humans and all that fun stuff. And no, Mm -hmm. he needs to burn too. And as Geralt's, all of our best friends are 
either magical creatures, yeah, (laughs) non-humans or like sorceresses. So, no. (laughs) No. And I mean, like, witchers are just a matter of time for them, too. Once it gets to the other ones, it's just witchers will happen. And we get another fucking pogrom. Now, if Dijkstra wins the war, uh, with Sigismund Dijkstra as head of state after out of its death, the North managed to defeat Amir's army, who was later assassinated by his opposition once he returned to Novgorod. So, like, again, Amir dies, but Dijkstra wins. And all your friends die. Yeah, and he's not, like, great. He's definitely, like he's definitely the better choice out of like the like three possible dictators here but not like it doesn't mean that he's good but like he won't kill the sorceresses right yeah. i mean he, he he like helps you get them out he's, of he's not novigrad earlier in the thing so he's not like as hateful no it's still not great though that's also that's also Novigrad. Uh, yeah, Dijkstra's not like a hater of non-humans or sorceresses or anything like that, but it's still Dijkstra. Mm-hmm. He's still a, a scheming intelligence officer, son of a bitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Our three options we have are all shit. Not great, but that's it. That's the story we know so far. Um, I'm sure we'll learn more once Witcher 4 comes out in five years and yeah. uh, you know, they give us a, canon- a canonical ending of The Witcher 3 and uh, we get to determine where no- uh, Nilfgaard went from this possible three possible endings. Mm-hmm. Or what well, I'm kind of hoping what they do is they add like a emulator into it um, before you start the game and go over the choices that you made in Witcher 3, possibly. Yeah. I mean, that would be nice, but like, but I feel like them, there's way too many like super impactful choices here that like it's hard to do. Because like, like the choices you make in Witcher 2 that can be like brought over to like Witcher 3 are like just kind of determinations of like what characters who, show up, who, like which characters like live and died, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, so like that's not a huge thing as opposed to like literally the entire like structure of this game might depend who won this fucking that's a war fair point that's, that's a fair point. pretty significant and there's a lot of like i said there's a lot of really impactful choices this how the ending went like with siri like all of the side stuff and how that went and a uh, little side thing here before we end the show i did finally do the i finished the whole velen baron quest line <clears throat> And I freed the spirit, which is the first for me, uh, and mm-hmm. went back and interesting, like, last moments for Anna, um, mm-hmm. which I feel like it was better on her terms because she dies at her own, with her mind still intact. Mm-hmm. But also, like, well, I mean, yeah, like you said uh, last time we talked about this, the village that, like, worshipped the crones or basically annihilated by a mad horse that just went and ran flames around everything. Yeah. And yeah, 
in the Baron. Yeah, I was not uh, the Baron rope thing was like. You've never me, seen like, that one before. No, I said, yeah, no, "Oh he, God, it's literally right in Crow's Perch." Yeah, <laughs> Holy no, crap. He, like he. Yeah, it's like like I said, like again, like there's a lot more like bad things that happen whenever you choose this option or whatever. But like as far as I'm like I in my perception, like the collateral damage on this is like a bunch of bad people die. Uh, and like there's one good person in Anna who dies because of it as opposed to like the the opposite so yeah it's like Baron like yes he's reforming but like I mean there's not a whole there's there's no like like I feel like there's no second chance enough for this man who has probably already had like second third fourth fifth sixth chances given to him by uh, Anna but like, oh, absolutely. Nah, we don't we don't forgive white wife beaters here. No. No, we do not. And I think he I can't remember. Does it does it ever state if he like abused his daughter? No, he never not? did. Okay. I think I guess Anna took the brunt of that. We should know what you would do as a parent, but still it's fucking rough. Still bad. <laughs> don't do that. But anyway, um, Toasty, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me also doing the Cyberpunk Lorecast, um, as well as the Cyberpunk Red Live Play podcast, Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk Apostrophe D. Awesome. And you can find me on this show as well as the Holocron Histories, the Final Fantasy Lorecast, and the Wit- or Wizarding World Lorecast. You can find them on the Witcher Lorecast. <laughs> you can. Actually. You can find me here it's on the strange. Witcher Lorecast. And um, coming up here in the next few weeks for Dragon Age Day, I do guest star on the Dragon Age Lorecast, where I am doing a roundtable with a bunch of other cool people talking about elves. Nice. So go listen to that because it was a lot of fun. We compare Witcher, Dragon Age, Lord of the Rings, D&D, and um, Zelda all together. Zelda doesn't really count. And you go and once that show, uh, episode drops, you'll, you'll understand why Zelda doesn't count. Fair enough. But that's all I got. Um, so thank you for listening to the Witcher lore cast. And stay safe on the path. Thank you for listening to the Witcher Lorecast. You can find us on the Robots Radio. This is your content warning. Prepare for a lot of bad things in this episode. Fair enough. I, uh, Discord at robotsradio.net. You can find us on the Ben and Friends podcasting Discord, where you can share your thoughts, comments, or even experiences with the Witcher lore. You can also find us on Twitter at Witcher Lorecast.